0: Hello and welcome to another Milwaukee Admirals podcast with Charlie Larson. I'm Aaron Sims and uh, Charlie we've gone this far. We've talked uh, 50 years of Admirals hockey. We've gone a long time. We've had uh, coaches from the past join us and right now we're going to have the current head coach of the Milwaukee Admirals join us on this podcast. Uh, He's head coach Carl Taylor. Uh, Thanks for doing this Carl. Uh, How is now I guess it's more summer like for you although you're probably in tune to getting ready for a training camp at this point normally
1: yeah it's been it's been different for everyone obviously there's lots of challenges but uh, you know I went to camp with Nashville and then off to the bubble with Edmonton um, that was a long uh, time away from family even though we would like to extend it even longer uh, but it didn't go that way so now being back home it's uh it feels more like summer for sure but the kids are starting school, and that's the first uh, first warning sign that the season should be starting, which it is not. The leaves are starting to fall in the backyard, um, and there's no hockey to be had at this time for us. So it's all very weird for everyone, but uh, we're going to move forward with some projects and uh, make sure we're keeping our minds sharp and getting ready for this season. We've,
0: always, we've all in this business been such creatures of habit. We go until you lose the last game or for hopefully win the last game, and then you have – a couple months off how has how has this been for you uh trying to navigate really something you probably haven't done since you were in high school maybe before that
1: well i think the uh it starts the season gets paused and everyone's hoping we get to come back especially this year with the uh the great results we were having and the expectations we had placed on ourselves for playoffs so we're anticipating we're trying to stay ready and be prepared to return to play and then once you hit the stage where that was over, and then it was like, okay, now we have to help the guys get ready in case the NHL comes back. And so we went through that stage, um, gone through the camp, gone through the bubble. I think now we're back and it's like, okay, what now? We have a tentative date, but uh, I think everyone knows we have no idea what those dates are actually gonna mean in the end, um, but we have to have some kind of idea and what we're trying to work towards. Uh, So as a staff, we had a a team meeting with the whole group, a Zoom call, and went through a few things, said hi to everyone, told them what our plans were moving forward. And again, we divided up the group. Each coach has got a few players to communicate with and work with and try to virtually coach uh, through Zoom and different things. Um, And then uh, as we move forward, each coach also has a personal project and a team project to work on. You know, it's not just about the players, but as coaches, we're trying to get better as well.
2: One of the things I've been curious about is what is ha- what what do the guys who are free agents do how much communication do you have you know like you just mentioned about uh, having discussions with the, with the team but there's a lot of guys that are free agents that are likely to be in other places next year are you still in communication with them or is this just guys who are under contract for next year
1: or well, future, there's, there's subsequent kind of a, years yeah there's kind of a catch-22 there for me everyone that was part of our team at the end of the season is still part of our team until they tell me differently. And I want to try to treat everyone that way. Um, obviously, there's always changes. Uh, those decisions are being made by our management group. And so we're going to move forward and try to help each individual player as much as we can, even if they end up on a different team. Now, they better get out of the division or else we might stop calling. them. Um, <laughs> but, but no, seriously, we're going to, like, we have a lot of relationships and a lot of, uh, a lot of time invested in each other. Obviously we had a special season and so the group we had, we want to help those individuals as much as we can. And I told a few of them, you know, if I can help with a phone call, that helps you. If you are looking to go somewhere else and try something, I'm more than willing to assist with that. Uh, I'd rather be calling management and tell you to stay here. Uh, But uh, in the end, everyone has to make the decision that's right for their career and for their family and what they feel is going to give them the best opportunity. So yeah, we're, we're moving ahead like they're on our team. And if they decide they would like to uh, not continue, that's fine too. And we wish them the very best and, and send them on their way. We'll see what happens when free agency starts, which I don't have the hard dates in front of me, Charlie, but when the season's over, it's going to be very, uh, Yeah. Like I, I think they, they,
2: the last possible Stanley cup game maybe is October 6th. Uh, and then, uh, and then the draft, or maybe the draft is October 6th, and the free agency would probably start immediately after that. But uh,
1: yeah. I'm not sure how they're going about it. I know they're going to, they're trying to get these games through quicker. You saw Dallas, they won the series. They played two days later, game one against Colorado. Right. So I know they're trying to move dates up uh, because there is no trauma. And those things, they're trying to compress the season uh, the best they can and also capitalize on their Friday and Saturday nights. We know how important that can be. So uh, I, think, I think the focus is get through this. Everything's going uh, uh, probably as, as best as they could have hoped for to this point. Uh, and then we'll see how it uh, changes the dates at the end and everything will get adjusted. But it'll be, things are going to happen quick, that's for sure.
0: When you said players looking out for the, what's best for their career, I'm curious when you felt that coaching was going to be your career. How young were you? Because you've been doing this more than half your life.
1: Well, thanks for the reminder.
0: <laughs> well, the thing is, you're still a young man. That's the thing about it. Like, well, you know, yeah,
1: this nice try on the recovery as well. Well,
0: I tell you what, it's, <laughs> it's one thing when you get into coaching when you're 45, 50. It's another thing when you've been doing it since you were 21,
1: 22. Uh, no, it's been, it's been a long time. And I think, uh, I think what happened for me was I was coaching and uh, I played at, I played in the OHL. I went to Canadian University. I uh, had a great experience at the school. Um, when I was finished playing there, we never quite won the championship. We lost in the Maritime Finals a couple of times and still had that, you know, feeling of something left on the table. I got involved with Kevin Pottle and the Fredericton Canadians Midget program. My buddy Lou Labelle moved on. And so I helped jumped in, helped out with Midget AAA, just helping out. And then the next season, there was a uh, opening with the university team where I used to play. So. I did a couple of years there helping out. We won a championship. And I think when we won the championship and accomplished that goal, we all know it's best as a player, but coaching might be second best. Um, felt very, uh, I felt a great sense of accomplishment. And I think that wet my whistle for uh, chasing down coaching. And that's where it started for me. It's a, did, did you ever, I mean, you played in the OHL. You played
2: in uh, the collegiate system in Canada. Did, did playing pro ever, was that of interest to you?
1: Well, I, 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 uh, funny story, and uh, the gentleman's not going to remember it. But I did get a phone call, uh, maybe when I was graduating from my undergrad, from the Bakersfield fog. So that's, <laughs> this going to be deep down the minor list. I yep. was the Central League or the West Coast League back then. Okay,
0: the old WCHL, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I came home from my job as a Moosehead beer rep and being a student or whatever it was, and hit replay on the, uh, on the answering machine that we used to have and the tape rewinded and then played the message. Hi, this is, uh, this is Keith Gretzky calling. I'm the coach of the Bakersfield fog. We need you. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, anyways, he was looking to add guys at the end of the year. And uh, uh, so I had some minor pro options um, but, uh, in the end I decided to stay in Fredericton, New Brunswick, where I was going to school. And then, uh, I ended up, uh, doing some master level courses the following semester. So that was the path I took instead of going and taking punches in the head in, in Bakersfield. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then after your college,
0: you, you got into the pro game pretty quickly.
1: As a yeah, coach. so I went from, uh, Fredericton. I, I, uh, my coach was Mike Johnson, who, uh, coaching at UNB. He went to be with the national program in Canada. He used to have a residence program. So I did a couple years there, and then Mike, they had a program in Calgary at the University of Calgary called the National Coaching Institute. Mike suggested I come work with his team and also uh, take the level five courses through the University of Calgary. Uh, and it was great, I'm glad I did it. It was a great experience. Mike actually moved on with Mark Crawford. That was after the Olympics. And so they connected and went to Vancouver together. And so in in, uh, that year, I was with Tom Rennie and Mike Polino were the two coaches I worked with in Calgary. And it was the last year they had that residence program, but it was a great experience. We got to work with all kinds of coaches from Olympic level sports. Uh, So you had two hockey guys, two rowers, two skiers, two, every sport you could think of were in a class together with uh, the Olympic level. Uh, Dr. Steve Norris was the exercise physiologist. Kim Amaro was the uh, sports psychologists. These are all people that are leaders in their fields, and we are able to do lead modules and learn from the best, and uh, it was one of my uh, one of my greatest growth experiences as coach, for sure.
0: So, this this isn't, this is, obviously, it's not X's and O's. This is about how to deal with people, how to deal with athletes, how to Problem solve
1: really. Yeah, it was all the modules. So it's like exercise physiology, sports psychology, strength training, long-term developments, altitude training, all the different things that you can consider for Olympic sports, and different things that you could see. Obviously, with uh, hockey being a team sport, it was a little different perspective than most of the sports that were involved in the courses. Uh, But it did allow you to also cross over. And we had to go watch different practices. We had to uh, watch other coaches. And to this day, I still reflect back and steal things from uh, a wrestling coach, from a ski coach. Uh, I pull things from that all the time. And, you know, uh, that's the one course was open up. And that's how I got my first job. Uh, Legend from Alberta, uh, Al Furchuk, was the athletic director at Red Deer College. And he he attended one of our uh, courses as an external Uh, member and he wanted to better himself and uh, in the spring he hired me so that's how I got my first job and moved up to Red Deer College to coach and also teach.
2: I I think it's so interesting that that this is how you went about it and I would imagine that other coaches could benefit from a little bit more of a of learning how to coach. World view, a world view. Yeah and, and, and so often I feel like you know in every sport the coaches are just the former players. And yeah, that's great. They have the experience of playing, but you know, Wayne Gretzky wasn't a great coach probably because it was so easy for him uh, to do it. And I I feel like they do that in colleges. Also, you just take a professor who just gets a PhD and you tell him to teach with whether or not he has any teaching experience at all. Uh, And so I, I, I guess my question is for you and maybe you sort of answered it already is that, you know, you, this, is a, this is, was really beneficial for you as you continue to uh, move along in your career to be able to fall back uh, on the education that you got.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that, it gives you a solid foundation. Um, let's not kid ourselves. I wish I played 10 years in the NHL and just walked into a job in the NHL as well. But Absolutely. that's the path. Uh, this was the path that I took. And uh, I think my foundation is very solid based on that. It's on, uh, you know, scientific data. It's based on like Dr. Steve Norris is one of the best in the world. He, I know, uh, I I'm helping out my son's team, uh, locally now. So, uh, I had to do some coaching levels with USA hockey <laughs> Sure. <laughs> so, so, uh, to be able to be eligible. And Dr. Steve Norris was a huge part of the module that I watched. It was funny to see him again. Uh, anyways, um, these, these are the experts in the world that have studied their whole lives and applied the scientific data to athletes to get top end performance. So to, to learn from that group is uh, So
2: did you have to go through, you had to go through all the normal steps of the USA hockey registration? Uh, like uh, did uh, attend a, attend a seminar and all that good stuff?
1: I paid my $51 to get my module for 16, 18U kids. Yep. I did my safe sport. I, yep. uh, I did the registration for minor hockey. And now I'm eligible to go on the ice and help out my son's team. And Matt Murray's a really good coach. He's done a good job of the program here. And uh, you know, he's like, "Hey, when's your season starting?" <laughs> just <started. laughs>
2: and you just knew what he was getting at, right? <laughs> so, anyway, so i are going to be helping
1: them out a little bit, which uh, would be great for uh, just try to give back a little bit. Too. Mm-hmm.
2: Talk a little bit about. Tell us how you got into the pro ranks uh, in Reading uh, back in. I mean, that's. Geez, it's hard to believe. It's 15 years ago. I'm sure it's hard to believe for you. Uh, again, I don't mean to allude to your
1: age here, but uh,
2: time flies when you're having fun. I've got lots of hair. I'm
1: good. I passed the test. So the uh, I was coaching. I went from Red College, University of Waterloo, and uh, the whole purpose was to get a Canadian university job originally, and to build a program, and that's something I really wanted to do. So we started doing, uh, doing that in Waterloo at a very good, uh, educational institution and, uh, out in Red Deer, I met a guy named Mike Kadar and Mike is, uh, he's my son's godfather. He's a really good dude. We ended up connecting and working together at Red Deer college. He played at Red Deer college for Mike Babcock. That's where Babs had his first job. And so, uh, Mike and I became close and I, uh, we actually flew out to Vancouver to spend a weekend with Mike Johnson on a work along type of a professional development event. He got hooked up with uh Twister, uh, Peter Twist with their strength conditioning mat, a kind of little fire for Mike. Mike started going to LA and working their camps. He got hired by Manchester. He left Red Deer College. So when I went to the University of Waterloo, I started going to LA because Ray Bennett was there, who also coached re- at uh, Red Deer College. Mike Kadar was there, who was their strength conditioning coach. And then Annie Murray was the head coach. So back in those days in the summers, uh, when you had your development camp, you couldn't have employees on the ice with the athletes as part of the union agreement and the PHPA agreement. So from that, they had to bring in guest coaches. And that's how I started my relationship with the LA King. Interesting.
0: Ray Bennett, Ray Bennett, the one that used to coach in San Antonio and was he in Cincinnati and, and all of that? Uh, Ray Bennett has
1: been uh, with Andy Murray for a long time, and Ken Hitchcock. So, so I got a
0: different Ray Bennett than I a Different gentleman.
1: Um, yeah, he he's he coached at Red Deer College, and he's currently an assistant coach with Betsy in Colorado.
2: Okay. So you, you go to Reading, and I guess I I I don't know what the responsibilities of a coach in a Canadian university are, but once you as a head coach in the ECHL you're not just a head coach, you're, you're everything. You're managing the operations. You're helping guys, payroll. Find, uh, payroll. You're helping guys find places to live.
0: Uh, you're recruiting players. So uh, well, I would think in all of that, your coaching in, at the university level comes, becomes invaluable right? when you're trying to sell guys on coming to Reading, Pennsylvania.
1: I think, I think the university job and the East Coast League job are similar. Uh, because you are a one man show for the most part. Um, Some teams in Canada now have a paid assistant in those programs. Uh, It was not that way when I was in that program and East Coast League had no other, it was one coach. Uh, You were a coach GM and then you had a business uh, gentleman who was your boss that would assist with all the outside issues. Uh, So they were both similar jobs because you're torn and pulled in a lot of different directions. And uh, it's like anything, when I got the job in Reading, it was a chance to move into pro hockey and uh, you know, spoke with Claude Noel about it and made the decision to go down that path. And uh, it, I learned the hard way that it's, it's, you have to have your day very organized and there's just your phone never stops ringing. It's 24 uh, seven and you have to be able to turn it off a little bit, but uh, you never want to be in a situation where a player misses an opportunity to get called up or any of those types of issues. So for me, it was basically when I did business outside of hockey, when the players weren't at the arena, once the players arrived, I tried to put the phone down and engage and make sure I was greeting the players. I was around the players. I was giving them my time. It was very easy at these coast league level to get stuck in your office on the phone, managing all the stuff outside of hockey. And I think your players were, uh, I wouldn't say neglected, but they, they missed out on coaching opportunities. And with you being the only person, uh, that's the way after the first year, I decided to go and I thought it went much better.
2: You mentioned your relationship with Claude Noel, uh, who's, uh, is, you know, very, uh, well thought of and a very successful coach for the admirals. So talk about, uh, talk about how you knew Claude and, uh, and your relationship with him over the years.
1: Yeah. Claude and I go back from, yeah, we're both from North Bay originally and, Uh, no, obviously he started in Kirkland Lake, but he started living in the North Bay. So he, he's a guy that, uh, Beb used to put on pro skates. I was a young man and my father happened to know a few people in town and somehow he got me out with this pro group to skate in the summer times on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, when it was over, I would leave and they would sit in the parking lot and visit and kibitz and maybe have a cold beer, but that wasn't part of my stick yet. I was like 13. (laughs) 14, 15, 16 years old. Right. So, uh, uh, but anyways, that's how I got to know Claude was just from being part of those uh, skates with the pro players that were from the North Bay area. And it, it was a great group. There's a lot of really good players and lots of people that would, uh, share knowledge, try to help you. You know, then I got drafted to the OHL and the guys were trying to help you more, trying to grow your game. But it was basically just the old school summer skates that, um, old Pep would put on and Pep would put on and uh, have a certain amount of people come out and uh, have the opportunity to skate and get better.
0: We've talked about this before, but if you wouldn't mind sharing the story, um, one of the great success stories that the Admirals look upon over the years as Rich Peverly uh, making it to the NHL and how the Admirals discovered him and all of that. And that's not entirely true the way that story goes. It's not the Admirals discovered him. Um, you kind of, uh, <laughs> you, had to, you had to let him go, so to speak.
1: Yeah, well, he was playing for me. So he played, uh, he was on a two-way contract a year prior, and he got, I think, two American League games as a rookie when he came out of St. Lawrence. And so then Rich uh, wanted to sign as an East coast league free agent so he can go to any American league team if was available. So anyways, uh, I that was my first year in Reading. So uh, Derek Clancy was the coach. I was replacing, he was going up to Manchester as an assistant. And so Derek and I kind of recruited together cause he were already down the path with a bunch of guys. And so it was a shared, uh, roster building system, if you know what I mean with Derek. Uh, so anyways, um, we ended up getting Pebs and Mark Ardellin were the two package guys that came in together. And so Pevs was, uh, he went into Manchester and he was cut the first round. He was red hot. He was really upset. And, and uh, anyways, he came down to Reading, did a great job for us. I think he played 12 games, 13 games, maybe there were six, seven weeks. And then myself and uh, I believe Mark Thompson, our radio man also called uh, Clody because they knew each other from the Toledo days. And so uh, I talked to Claude and we talked about Rich, and uh, he, he just deserved an opportunity. So Rich got called up on a weekend, and Claude called me on Monday and said, Pack his stuff and send it here. <laughs> he's not coming back. So uh, that was the first guy I truly lost in the East Coast League. I'm like, What do you mean he's not coming back? So I didn't quite understand the league yet, I didn't know how it worked. Um, and I was a little naive with different things, but uh, I was pushing hard to get Rich an opportunity. I felt bad for how it went for him in Manchester. And then, Claude, uh, obviously, uh, Rich ran with it once Claude got his hands on him.
0: Do you I mean, guys, as as coaching in the ECHL, do you have a role? There, i got to imagine there are a ton of former players, maybe not a ton, but a certain group of former players around the Reading area, or if you go to uh, Worcester or wherever you may go in the in the ECHL that there's a Rolodex of guys that because if you have that many free agents you're going to be down to there are nights you're probably you might be with 12 13 guys to play a game.
1: Yeah and back then the, the teams didn't sign as many contracts as they do now to these Coast Lakes so you might have four or five contracts uh, max uh, so you still had 15 guys that were free agents uh, so Uh, the thing I learned was you can't be sitting there and going, Oh, I need a goalie. you got to have a list made. And so uh, the way I managed it, I made lists at every position of real hockey players in the sunshine league or the Southern pro league or whatever. I'd have a list of those guys ready to go. And then I had an emergency group that I had that were local people and Larry Corbell who coached there for a long time. ended up winning a Kelly cup. He was my, uh, player slash assistant coach, and so he knew lots of people in the area. Played in, uh, you know, in Hershey for a long time, and lived in the area. So Larry was a key guy for me. So we had all kinds of people. If you go look at that roster, the first year, I cannot believe the number of players we went through. But we brought guys in from everywhere, off of Wall Street. We brought guys in for a weekend. I remember. I signed a guy from, I forget the practice Rick and ready, but he played men's league, but he played in Princeton like 15 years earlier. He came and played a weekend. Uh, we, we had guys from all over the place. I think it was almost, I don't know what the number is. It was 60 or 60 plus players that season. Um, it was a lot of guys. You got a it and you pull it up. I, I, I just can't believe the number, but you go through a lot of players and every day you never knew what was gonna happen. Um, there's salary changes every day. You're recruiting on Um there, There's, <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story. We're driving to Greenville. We're down to, I forget. I think the minimum amount of skaters was 10. That's what, if you didn't have 10, you forfeit. So <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to Greenville for a game and Doug Yanks, who's a long time, very astute GM of the Hershey bears calls me and we're on the bus and he's like, there's kind of an unwritten code that if you're on the bus, your team's safe from call-ups or what have you, right? Like because you're already going to your spot. Right. So, Ten-hour uh, haul down the road, and he calls. I really need Jeff State. I got to have Jeff State. Jeff State's the guy. And I'm like, well, we're on the bus, Doug. What do you want me to do? I got ten skaters. What would you like me to do? So, anyways, Doug says, "Hey, can you pull over to a gas station?" And th- there's no like smartphones yet. It's flip phones still. He's like, pull over to a gas station and drop them off on the side of the road. We're going to send a booster down to pick them up. This is, <laughs> it wasn't even my affiliate. This was, this was like uh, – it wasn't Manchester. So, like, we – because our location was so good, that's why we got good players like a Rich Beverly. Yeah, we did a good job recruiting and all that stuff, but they had lots of access to all these teams because there's sure. so many teams in that vicinity.
0: Oh, especially then right with the when or yeah. before,
1: before yeah, we it was all over so anyways so we go to greenville I, i'm gonna forfeit the game i don't know what to do so we had a guy a young man he was our third goalie and he wanted to coach his name's brian gratz and so i took him as a favor on the bus because he wanted to pick my brains and maybe become a coach and uh so brian gratz was our emergency goalie our e bug, and uh Lo and behold, Cody Rakowski is a really good goalie. He was one of my goalies. My other goalie was Yutaka Fukufuji out of uh, Japan. So those those two guys, they were screaming at each other because I had to make the decision to dress a goalie as a forward and give him my skates to play the game so that we can (laughs) leave minimum and have the
2: game count. I mean, 10, 10 players is what they play with at minor hockey, right? You got two lines
1: and two sets of D. So so not only do I have to play a goalie as a player in my coach's skates, Cody's so mad that I won't let him be the guy. Right. Oh yeah. Grazie do it. It's almost a fist fight in the locker room. Anyways, Grazie goes in for warm up. We're in the big uh, Greenville stadium. There's orange seats everywhere. First shot starting goalies, Fuka Fuji. Grazzi hits him right between the eyes. Bullet slap shot from the hash marks. Almost knocks my starting goalie out. I yell from the stands. Gra- so, Brian Gratz has one game played in the East Coast League. Um, we lost the game 5-4 in overtime. That's all I can tell you. Wow. Uh, crazy story. <laughs> True story. gratzi has got pitchers. He coaches over in the uh, feeder for Russia. Now, he, he has gone on to coach in the East Coast League and do some things. And, uh, but he played one game as a forward in the East Coast hockey yeah. league. He, he, I, uh, uh,
2: it sounds almost like this. It sort of sounds like how Matt Donovan's dad became the the oldest rookie, uh, maybe in professional hockey because he ran the rink in the CHL down in Oklahoma city and they were out, running out of guys and they said, okay, Hey, we need a guy to be able to play tonight. So, uh, come on in. And he played, I think he played two or three games, but, uh, Back then, the CHL, that was not a place where you wanted to be as a a 34-year-old father of two making your uh, pro debut. A little rough and tumble there.
1: There's so many crazy stories when it comes to the the AA level. It's it's obviously gotten way more professional every single season that it advances. They've done a great job moving ahead, all those things. But uh, there's some really good... you You go back to some of those John Brophy stories and different stories and Uh, there's some really good stories out there but that's that's one of my favorites uh for sure I saw did you coach against John Brophy no I did not
0: no okay I was just curious I, I saw John Brophy at a North Stars Maple Leafs game and he went after Basil McRae and then he turned and went after Herb Brooks and was being held back by Michelle Petit I was in the stands for this game it was I was 15 years old and it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And that white hair, right? That white hair that John Brophy had he's got and lots red fire. face that sure. just bright red face and the white hair. It was such a, He's got,
1: he's got lots of fire. He's, uh, <laughs> he's a legend for sure. So, i got one more for you. So we have, sometimes you don't, you can't find your goalie, right? So you got, you lose your goalie. You can't get a goalie in. So my trainer, my Trader, he, he he uh he would be the goalie sometimes as the emergency goalie so uh we put him we put him so you come in between periods and the guys are getting their skates done there's a guy in goalie gear sharpening skates <laughs> so, so pat wicker was our equipment man and he was our e-bug sometimes anyways so he's an e-bug i can't remember where we're playing but if if it doesn't count on the score sheet unless you get in the game. Right. right. Not. So this is a true story. So the game's over. I think we won because I obviously was in a good mood. I pulled the ref over. I said, hey, give this guy a two-minute minor, would you? He's like, what are you talking about? I said, I got to get him on HockeyDB. It'd be the greatest thing ever for him. He'd be, yeah. <laughs> so the ref the ref was a good dude. I can't remember who it was. He gave my, my, my e-bug a two-minute misconduct for mouth and off or whatever it was <laughs> well if you go to hockey db and look up pat in the wicker he's got one game played two minutes in penalties so he got wow. it on db so good for that
0: awesome <laughs> that's fantastic that is
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's so good uh would, I, while you're in reading then things move around and you end up starting the team in ontario what's it like to go from East Coast, where everything is, is, you you get to know it pretty well, to West Coast, where obviously there was some hockey, uh, and and hockey is a popular sport, but at the same time, you're starting a franchise in a community that didn't have one really before.
1: Yeah, that was a great experience, and obviously we moved from uh, the East Coast, we went to the West Coast, it was beautiful out there. Uh, We found a great community to live in, and uh, starting a team from scratch was exciting, uh, we were late into the fight a little bit because it was basically not an expansion team. It was a transfer from the Texas Wildcatters. And so there was some previous things to deal with. Um, but starting in the the arena is just absolutely beautiful. You guys have seen it. Uh, right. Gorgeous arena. It was a great setup um, and uh, just, just a fantastic experience. And LA wanted to start that team. I think they had a long-term plan of the American League moving out there at some point. And uh, this was just the beginning stages of trying to transition into that. Uh, so it was, it was a, a great place to play, great, great facility, uh, great ownership with the Kemp family. Uh, it was great experience all around. So um, it was a little different because you would have your players longer. You had different concerns how you built your roster um you you know you had to be careful you didn't have a guy who was just wanted to be in California absolutely <laughs> right you had, you had uh you needed some veteran players but you also had to balance your roster a little bit so it was a different way of recruiting and building your roster but um it was the same league so
0: it's a it's a fine line though now to you've you've been a head coach for a while in the ECHL it's it's it, 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 you're sort of in a similar situation now. It's a fine line. Do you want to be a head coach at maybe a lower level or an assistant at the next level? Obviously, you want to be the head coach at the highest level. But how how difficult is that decision um, when, a, when a Chicago opens up, when a Texas opens up, rather than run your own program in the ECHL?
1: Yeah, I think, I think you have to know where you are and also what your path is and what you think is real. You know, currently I'm sitting here. We've had two great seasons in Milwaukee. I want to be a head coach in the national hockey. League. that's my goal. That's where I'm going. That's what I want to do. Is it a realistic goal? There's a lot of people with the same goal. Uh, Do you have to go as an assistant, which may be the better decision. Um, Those are difficult things. And until those two options are in front of me, I'm not going to worry about it. So uh, the focus is do a great job wherever you are. And that's what I've always tried to do. Um, When I made the decision to leave Ontario, it was time for me to get to the next level. It was uh, the East coast league there's lots of good stories and we can keep telling stories about different things and what have you and good experiences and how good the hockey is or funny, funny anecdotes. Um, it, it's tiring. It wears you out. Uh, it was my sixth year in that league. It, it's a difficult league to continually push through cause it never ends. There's always something going on and it's not a league issue. It's just the level that it is. It's not a, uh, it's just the way it is. It's a very difficult place to coach and it can grind you down. So I felt I had to make the jump. And uh, I was trying to get an affiliation with Vancouver. They had just gone and lost to Boston in game seven. And so we were trying to get a secondary affiliation. So I met with Lauren Henning, who's uh, yep. one of the greatest gentlemen in hockey. Yep. And so I Lauren still lived out in, in uh, California from his days with the Ducks. and He was an assistant GM of Vancouver. And so I was trying to get an affiliation agreement. And I you know, we went to dinner. He says, "Hey, congratulations! You got the affiliation agreement. By the way, I want to hire you and send you to Chicago." I'm like, <laughs> "I wasn't even I wasn't even going down that path." And so they hired Craig McTavish, and then he made the decision to make that jump and go to Chicago.
2: Did Did you know Craig uh, prior to that?
1: I did not. So uh, I think the plan was uh, they were going to hire another gentleman. There's going to be two of us. And I believe it got a little late and there maybe there were some contract issues. And so it ended up just being Craig and myself, which was uh, probably better for me overall because I got to really know Craig. He didn't bring in his guy type scenario where I would be the extra guy, if you know what I mean. So it probably worked out better for me to build my relationship with uh, Craig. And uh, we had a great season. We had a very good season. We had a good team. Um, and unfortunately, we got stung in double overtime in game five in round one.
2: The, the I mean, you look at that, Admiral fans are very familiar with that team, and we want to, we want as the nature of a fan, and why I say we, I guess I'm lumping myself in there also, <laughs> but we want to hate these guys, right? Like, you know, we see the names on here, like the Jordan Schraders of the world, and, uh, you know, I'm looking at the roster right now, Kevin Connaughton and uh, Mark Bancari, even though he was only there for, I think, one year. Uh, we don't like to like these guys, but these are all—they're all—they're all good guys. And Darren Haydar too was uh, was playing yeah, for the team yeah. at, at that point as well. These are all good guys, and I imagine you enjoyed your time in Chicago.
1: No, we had a great group. We really enjoyed it, and uh, Matt gave me lots of responsibility, which was great. Uh, we had a good group. We had a good season. We ended up winning the division, and uh, you know, San Antonio got hot, and we—the old two-three system—we did that again. We lost both games on the road, and then we came back very similar to my first year in Milwaukee. And then the fifth game went double overtime. and they were able to score and knock us out. I believe Greg Rallow might've been on that team that knocked us out. Um, uh, but the uh, the uh, the players were all good and Knotts and I, I saw him in the bubble. We had a nice hug and said hi. Uh, he's doing well. He played the last game for Colorado. He snuck in when Johnson got hurt. Uh, he was always a very good player. We had lots of good players there. Obviously we all know about Darren Hadar um, his, his history on Chicago and Milwaukee. Uh, but all those players were really good players. We had a young group and we had some veteran guys. Nolan Baumgartner was our captain, He's yep. an elite player, played a very long time. And that was a very good coach. For yep. Former Badger, Steve Reinprecht, who must've been about 43. Yeah, uh, that- was the best. I have to tell you, I didn't know what we're going to get there. Like this is my first experience at that level. Yeah. And it came down being a full-time NHL what won a cup, did a lot of things. He was outstanding. I have nothing but great things to, to express to anyone about Rhino and how, what he did for us in that scenario and how he led our team, how he dug in. He just, he was a pro and he was part of what we were doing and a uh, uh, ton of respect for how he handled that situation.
2: So you end up in, in, well, you, you finish your year in Chicago, you do you're not come back. You spend a year in Portland and then how do you end up in Texas?
1: Goodness gracious, I've been. I teacher. know, I,
2: I hate to jump over three years of your whole life, right? But uh, we only, we don't, we don't have, uh, we got to get into the Milwaukee stuff here and we don't, have, you know, so we got to condense things.
1: That's real. You're ready for it. So, Mac T left to go back to Edmonton. I was a, uh, I was a man without an island. And so I scouted for a year for Vancouver. And then I had uh, a decision. I could have went into Utica and helped out being like a manager of hockey type thing, kind of like Ryan and helped them start that program. It didn't work out, so I ended up going to Portland where Mike Johnson was coaching and Travis Green had moved to Utica to be the head coach. So uh, through Lauren Henning. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It was all connected, right? So uh, anyways, I had a year in Portland. uh, a stopgap because I was stuck a little bit. I had to find employment. And so we had that season. And then we we actually played Derek Laxton in LCBS in Game 7. And they won the championship and then won the Marlowe Cup. He had a good team and we had a really good team as well. Uh, but it was just the way it went that, that season. But Derek and I have followed up through the East Coast League and through different leagues and always stayed in touch with each other. And uh, he ended up getting the Texas job and he fought to get me hired and that's how I ended up in Texas.
0: And there too, like 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 in Chicago, it was a, a two-coach system. It wasn't a, There wasn't a second assistant. There wasn't mm-hmm. all of that stuff. You had uh, – there too, a lot of res- you guys had div- divvied up the responsibilities.
1: Yeah, it was just the two of us for the first three years. And then uh, the last year we hired a video coach would helped a lot. But it was just the two of us for the first three years, which basically I, I had to set up all the video stuff. Our, our, our assistant equipment guy, uh, he would tag the games for us. Um, it was, it was uh, yeah, we ran tight, uh, but we had a lot of success there. And we found our rhythm. Um, it was really nice when we hired the video coach. I found that really allowed me to dig into coaching more and get away from all the technical stuff. And uh, but we yeah uh, we we split up. It was basically you know head coach associate coach type scenario where we worked together, made all the decisions together, and uh, it was a really good experience. And we obviously we had a good run there, which led to me getting to Milwaukee. There we made it, Charlie. We made it go. We made it.
2: <laughs> well, I we made it. Uh, not not quite. I don't think because I. Uh, and I hate to bring up the, the bad, bad stuff, but you know, you, you guys had a great, some very good teams, like you mentioned, including your last year in Texas, where you make it to a game seven of the Calder cup finals. And that, and where you guys lost to, to Toronto, but just take us through what it's like to be in like how, that situation, how stressful that is as a coach or how do, how do you think the players responded? Cause I couldn't imagine what it was like when, uh, being in that situation.
1: Yeah. I've, I've been in a few of those games and through those, like, it's such a long, it's two months. Like, so you like, you play until June 16th, I think it was game seven. Right. And it all was done. We were the last game in the world, um, which was really cool and all those things, but it's a long grind. Um, it's a long time. It's very difficult to win. And, uh, you know, you get that far and for us. Uh, we were, it was three uh, two we won game six we went back for game seven uh, so uh, the teams um, you're chartering back and forth you're, you you are uh, so you go into game seven and it's in Toronto so the media you know how Toronto can be and all the different things and challenges and the good things that come with that so all that energy and there's no other hockey on so the whole hockey world was focused on, that game based on how it happened. The whole Toronto staff is there, the Dallas staff, all the media, cause there's nothing left to watch or to analyze or to talk about. Right. So everything was there part of that program in that moment. Um, so as a coach, you're just trying to stay focused on the process and funny story. So you go in, it's a great facility there at the RICO Center. I think they call it something else now. Anyways, we go in there and on the desk, the coach's room, there's those bracelets it's the bracelets for after the game. So family and friends can get on the ice and celebrate. Right. Eric and I are looking at them going, get these things out of here. Yeah,
2: right. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing worse would be bring champagne in there before the game, right?
1: So all those things are challenging trying to deal with that. Lots of us had family come for the game seven and fly in and different things in anticipation of hopefully winning that game. And, um, so there's lots of nerves. Toronto was a very good hockey club. So were we, I think we were the underdogs going in. And I, I think in the end we pushed them really far. Uh, we had a couple of really good looks early in game seven, probably three or four great A's, And we didn't bury and, uh, it was two, one for the most part. I think it ended up six, two or six, one at the end. They had a couple of late ones to pull away from us. So, uh, incredible run, incredible experience, but doesn't, uh, you still lost the last one. So it's a little bit deadening when it's over.
0: But then you got the, the, the low of that to you got to turn around. And, I, I mean, that's, that's got to be a week, two weeks, right? It was, it was almost immediate. So, what, what's, were you doing all the interviews, your networking? What were you doing? So I got to imagine it's
1: starting during the playoffs. The, the long story there is it's very difficult because I think there was over 10 openings in the American League uh, for the head coach jobs. So we're in playoffs and we're playing and having success. We're trying to win a championship. And so it's gone from 10 jobs to eight jobs, six jobs, to four jobs as the, as it's progressing. And I'm feeling like it's time for me to grab one of these. And, but you want to be focused on what you're doing. You can't be calling for another job when you're trying to win a championship. Right. Right. That's a very good, uh, a very good uh, example that you're stating. So basically a friend of mine called a friend when, uh, when Paul hired Dean and there was an opening and said this person would be interested uh, at some point. Um, he's busy right now. He doesn't want to take his focus off uh, what he's doing. Um, and that's how it happens You're, There's no sending in your resume. That's not the business we're in. Um, so basically there's uh, I, I believe in between games, I did a, a, a phone interview with the management group. Um, it was all approved through Dallas. Everybody knew what was going on. There was no, so we just did a courtesy phone interview to make sure, um, I fit, checked a few boxes. And then when the series was over, uh, the draft was the next weekend, it was in Dallas. Yep. So I remember I drove up to, da- I drove up to Dallas and I had an in-person interview. I think there was 10 people, the full NHL staff, the management group, <laughs> they're interviewing other people, but uh, the room was packed and, uh, had the interview. And then the next week was development camp. So I went back to Austin. Then I flew to Nashville for a second interview uh, with a presentation and a process um, and then was offered the job.
2: That's got, I imagine that's pretty intimidating to walk into a room and to have 10, I mean, including, it's not just Scott Nickel, who's our general manager, but it's probably David Poyle. It's all the scouts. That's, a, that's got
1: to be an intimidating
2: uh, proposition.
0: And, and maybe you don't know any of them. I don't know if you had a relationship with any of them or not.
1: Right. There's no personal relationships for the most part. I had known Peter, I knew Lavi a little bit from uh, just talking on conference calls and what have you and picking his brain. Um, so the whole coaching staff was in interview one plus the management group. And, uh, it wasn't, uh, I was very comfortable in that environment. I think sometimes, you know, if you're in the hallway before an exam and you've done the work, you're not sweating very much, right? If you haven't done it, then you are sweating. So I knew I was ready for the opportunity, but you're always hoping it's going to go well and deliver your message properly. Um, so I was very comfortable in that environment. That was, uh, I wouldn't call it a layup, but I, you know, when you're ready, you're ready. And I think I was at that point in my career. And then when I went in for the next interview, um, you had to do a presentation. So basically I had to present video for the whole team systems we ran in Texas. And that would be a really long video. That's a lot of stuff. So I had to pare it down and cut it down. But in the video room in Nashville, I, I bet you there was 25 people in that one. So that, that was a full house. And It's not your environment, so it's a little more uncomfortable. The presentation stuff is easy. That's an easy slide. That's just what you do. That's not a complicated thing to get through or to present or to manage how you work the computer, how you present, how you work the room, how you ask questions. All those things, that's an easy environment because that's what you do every day. Uh, But having that many people scrutinizing you was uh, a little bit intimidating. We all feel it sometimes. That's the truth. We can pretend that we don't, but we do.
0: I like I, I you since day one have been a guy who has uh, preached the importance of giving the room over to the guys and listening to this and listening to your experience um, in that that coaching clinic that our coaching uh, classes where in, with the Olympics and all of this stuff I I, I see where it comes from now like it, how important it is the psychology of it the all of that it's it, it's it's really amazing to watch.
1: Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you this: I didn't do it early on. Early on, when you're a young coach, you want to control you want to control everything. I yeah, yeah. well,
0: not only a young coach, but a young anything. You yeah. think you have to control everything?
1: Yeah, and you want to? You want to? Uh, I remember if I don't sweat the small things, nobody will. That was something I lived on. So, you know, and that's extra extra detail over coaching. There's there's a balance. There's a true balance. Now, when I say I like turning the room over you got to have the horses and the players to be able to do it so if you don't have the right mix or the right room uh, for example like the first year we had a great group of guys we get the playoffs first two games i'm like what team is this what happened to our team not that we lost the games but we just didn't play the way we could and i thought our veteran players struggled so uh, i did some research and uh, i'm like okay we have no playoff experience it's something i missed as a coach I said, we got to get our hands back on the wheel here a little bit and help these guys out. So a couple meetings, a couple, whatever, help them through it, talk through things, you know, and it's just something I missed in that moment. Um, So your group has to allow you to do it. They have to be a mature group. And uh, you know, coaching changes every year. What I did last year won't be what I did this year. There's always going to be 60, 70% that's going to be the same, but the group you have, the individuals you have, you know, that, that's that's going to dictate how you run your group, what culture you create, what environment you want to have. Ideally, it'll be the way we've done it, but sometimes you have to adapt based on your group and trying to manage the group the best you can to get well, that and also get your results.
0: And that, and that's the important thing that pe- people need to realize. You can have your style that you prefer to play, but if you have a bunch of thoroughbreds, you can't play you can't play the grinding, just beat them up kind of hockey. It's nice to have the mix, certainly. And I think this year's team, what made it so special was not only mentally, but physically you had kind of everything. You could, The Admirals could play any way possible, but it is important that the co- the coach has to be adaptable. It's not just the players who have to learn. It's the coach needs to learn.
1: Yeah, since that's the uh, – in the East Coast League, we would sign our own players for the most part. And so you could build your team how you wish. In the American League, you don't do that. You, you might be consulted. You might be asked your opinion on guys you know. Um, management gives you the players, and you're expected to make them better, and you're expected to win games, um, regardless of the names. And, and when you really look at it, if you think of the 20 years or 25 years you guys have been doing this, the names change. The type of player usually is very similar on every team. You'll get a mix and there's the challenging guy, there's the hard work guy, there's this guy, the names will change, but you usually have the same type of personalities for the most part to deal with and to manage and to help uh, exceed the expectations they've placed on themselves. So every year is similar, but each individual is different. But you know, we have guys from Finland, you have guys from Russia, you have guys from different cultures, different, different family environments. There's so many moving factors that, that's why I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, clearly a relationship-based coach. I want to get to know the guys. I want to dig in. Uh, I've said this from day one. The answers are not in the computer. You can watch and find whatever you look for. You can watch tape. We grind tape like everyone else, but you're not going to find the answers in the computer. Nobody's blocking a shot because they're saying, wow, our coaching staff watches a lot of video. I owe them. <laughs> It's not happening. They're doing it because you got their back. And uh, there's critical moments in the season where you get presented with opportunities to show your team and your players that you're going to support them. And it's important for coaches to grab those opportunities.
2: You've been, uh, since day one, you and Scott Nickel have both really been not just about the, just the game, but about the culture. And this sort of goes to Aaron's question or point as well, but it's, it 's really important for you that the culture is uh, is maximized it 's the most important thing that you 're not bringing in bad guys who are happen to be good hockey players because if, if they can help as much as they might help you on the ice, they hurt you off the ice and and given the room over and so uh, I, I imagine that was a, a big thing for you taking the job is to making sure that it was that, that this was a match that you 're just not taking a position because you want to be a head coach in the AHL. That's great. You need to put yourself into an opportunity to succeed as well. And Nashville has always really been that way. They've been a character organization.
1: Well, I would say this, you're, you're always working for the next job, the day the next the, the job you're doing starts. So, uh, it's just the way it works. So, um, you need to be in a situation to be able to have success. Obviously we've had some good players placed here and some character individuals, like you've said um you 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 can always insulate and carry a a challenging player whatever the reason is um but if you have four or five of those challenging players then your group can't sustain that they can't welcome that group in it becomes a segmented room and you can't have that that you're not going to have success because when the pressure's on or things are getting hot the true colors are going to show like they do in all our lives when the pressure is on. It's just the way it goes. You can maybe fake it and pretend it for a while, but if your core and your foundation isn't strong, you're not going to get through those situations. So for me, uh, Nash has done a good job of, uh, You know, the first year we went through a lot of players here too. Um, it wasn't always a character flaw or any anything uh, like that. It was just new management and uh, they wanted to do things a certain way and they were trying to bring in a certain type of player and build this the way we wanted to. And so Scott and I have talked a lot about what we're trying to do here and what we're trying to build uh, outside of helping players get to Nashville. We're also trying to do something locally from Milwaukee and what um, our local fans enjoy and what our own local ownership cares about. And I think we're well on that path doing everything we would like to do. But like I said, you can have one or two challenging players. I don't want to say bad eggs because the players are the players, right? <laughs> So it doesn't matter. You've got to coach them. Like, this is your team. So you get your team. you got to coach them. you got to find a way to help them develop and become a bigger asset and also find a way to win games. So I think in the end, uh, once you get to a point as a coach that you agree with that statement and you accept it and you're going to dig in and help, you're looking for solutions instead of pointing fingers, and that's always going to lead to to, uh, success.
2: You, we, we have a captain or we've had a captain here the last two years in Jared Tenorti, who I think has been one of the best captains in my 20 years with the organization. Um, Just talk a little bit about Jared and his role and just, and his ability to sort of almost re to use a marketing term, rebrand himself, reorganize his game to get back to the NHL after having not played
0: Uh, up there for I think first round pick and not getting a lot of games. Yeah. Until
1: recently. Now, you know what? It's, it's difficult to make it. And, uh, sometimes you need a second life or a second opportunity. Um, Jared came here with the hope that he was going to get that opportunity. Uh, I've spoken at length about him as a captain and as an individual, him and I have a great relationship when he was here. We discussed a lot of things. Um, You know, there'd be something on my mind, I'd say, Hey, me, or you? And he'd say me and I'd say, thank you very much. Have a good day. I knew it was going to be handled. Um, and then he was like, Hey, can you help me in this area? Yep. We'll have a quick little powwow on that make sure everybody's on the same page. So you got to have that give and take and that trust between your leadership group, not just your captain, but your whole leadership group. Um, they have to be able to come in and fight for their teammates and say, Hey, we're working too hard. Your practices are bad in this area. You have to be receptive to receive that criticism. If you want to get the best, you know, like your all your production is in the last 5% of effort. If you're not scratching that surface, you're not going to push to the top. So I I really believe you got to have that give and take. And uh, I agree with that. I thought Jared Tenardi was a great captain. I thought Scott Ford and our coaching staff, we did a great job developing him and helping him improve in certain areas. And sometimes it's a confidence thing. You put him in spots where he – he is able to show what he can do and how he can present himself uh, and and play the way he did. And what a great story. He, you know, second life went to Nashville was able to stay there and establish himself in the second half of the year as an NHL player. And uh, over this time, you're asking me what I'm doing. Well, I don't know how it's going to end up in the fall or when we start again, but you know, we have to consider and look for a new captain potentially. And we're hoping that we have to, because that means Jared's going to be in a spot where, He's established himself and moved on, which we'd, we'd all be very proud of.
0: One of the great things about the American Hockey League is from year to year, uh, day to day, but certainly year to year, there's change. One of the worst things about the American Hockey League is that from year to year, there's great change. Uh, the Admiral certainly had a special season this year. And for the most part, obviously, things can happen between now and the resumption or the, the beginning of the next season. Um but right now, it seems like there's there's going to be minimal change. There's going to be change, but there's going to be minimal change, and you're going to bring back a lot of the guys that I got to imagine your team, and maybe you addressed this with them here the other day when you talked about your Zoom call. Are hungry to finish the job?
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. Like the guys were disappointed how it ended, and and especially our more experienced players because they understand that these opportunities don't come along very often. Um, it's special whatever happens, so. Uh, you know, why do we end up with a, a couple more one-ways than usual, usual in Milwaukee? Well, that, that's just the way the season went, right? So that assisted our group and supported our group, made us a better team, allowed us to have the right mix. Um, that doesn't That's not a usual thing in, in uh, Milwaukee's history if we right. back over time. So uh, we all know how special the year was and the opportunity that we're missed out on as far as the playoff opportunity. Um, the guys want to come back. And that's the hard part for guys that are free agents. You look at our group, you have, you know, Freddie Goudreau is a free agent, Daniel Carr. Like those are some pretty high-end players. So do they love it here? Yep. Did they have a great experience here? Yes. What are their options? What are the financial options? What are the options with a different team that maybe there's a clearer path to the National Hockey League for them, uh, for whatever the reason. So those are all things that, the. Uh, uh, the players and their agents will have to consider when they see their options come out. I will say that, uh, Scott has done a good job signing guys early. Um, I think we got uh, some guys signed that helped that will help us and part of our core. Um, there's still time to sign more guys. We'll see how it all plays out. I'm not privy to all the discussions, but, uh, obviously our management group has done a good job putting together the group the last year and, uh, built the group where we had the opportunity to have the run that we did last year. So we're going to trust them and uh, hope that we get a great group and have a chance to start again, whenever that time comes.
2: At, w- at what point last season, every coach goes into the year thinking, we, I think we got a good team or maybe not every coach, but most coaches go, you know what, if this guy can, uh, you know, do, get a little bit better, progress throughout the year, we're going to have a good team. So at what point last year, did you look out on the ice and, and, and you were like, wow, like this is a really good team.
1: Well, we had success pretty early. Like, obviously, the first game of the year, we got our – we got whacked pretty good. Um, So, that was humbling um, because you go through camp and you're all excited and then, oh, what just happened? Yeah, and and we're in Iowa nonetheless, too, right? For sure. So, that was an extra stinger. But uh, I think think for the group, um, there's a lot – we knew we had some good players. We we were young down the middle. If you look at Novak, Pitlick. We had young players down the middle, so we weren't sure. Wilkins. That's – three rookies basically playing center. So that's usually not a formula for success. Generally, you build your D, your goalies, and then your centers, right? That's how <laughs> traditionally people go about their business. So for us, I think there was a moment we, uh, Carsey came down, he had a slow start, and we made that switch. We put him with Novi and uh, Snides, and they caught fire. I think that was part of it. And then when we moved Pitter to the middle and connected him with Tolvi, and then we put Freddie there. I think those two lines uh it became part where we had some chemistry but from day one the wilkins juno and maddie levy line when you when you have a uh, a so-called fourth line and I, I i we like to call them our identity line because they would go on the ice and dictate play turn the game around um, ozone time grind teams when you have a line like that, you've got a special group and you had those other two lines that were just sniping. So uh, for us to have that mix and have that opportunity, there's few moments where you're looking at it and you're thinking, geez, we got a chance. Uh, obviously winning all those games in a row. <laughs> winning game 13, we're going, yeah, we got a pretty good team. We got a chance.
0: <laughs> we as we need to wrap this up pretty soon. But uh, you mentioned Tanner Janot. I, I want to highlight him real quick because – uh, he's a guy who played. He was here the first season, pretty much all season. Uh, had some injury issues. Um, I'm sure he was looking for big things, and then the way the numbers shook out, he had to go down to the ECHL. He's a guy who scored nearly 50 goals in the Western Hockey League his last season there. So you know that he's a, a high-level player. Um, but he didn't have to. He didn't start the season here. But I, I don't think we can say enough about his attitude and his ability to. I don't know necessarily if he's changed his game, but his ability to adapt and, and know what he needs to do to be effective as an individual in a team game.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, all the coaches, all the managers, everyone around our team have nothing but great things to say about Tanner. He's an individual that will 100% maximize whatever he's got to give. I don't know what his ceiling is going to be. Um, I've learned not to predict that because there's lots of guys that have proven me wrong when I said, this guy's not going to play. And then they play four years in the NHL, which is awesome. They love it. Um, so I stopped making those predictions. I think for Tanner, I, I trust, and if I had to bet, hey, if he's going to get to a 100% potential, I would put all the money I have on it because he's an individual that's a pro. There's no greater compliment that you can give a player and say he's a pro. He shows up, he looks great, does his job, great teammate, willing to do the hard things, willing to work to get better. Uh, listens to the coaching messages, holds the coaches accountable. You know, and we don't talk about that very much, but that's a critical formula for players is you've got to hold your coach accountable. Now, your coach has got to be receptive to that. But, you know, if a player comes in and says, I want this, you got to hold and be strong enough to get a plan from your coach that will give you an opportunity to be presented with that when you do what he tells you to do. And the answer, just keep working hard, isn't good enough because they're already working hard. So you got to give them some steps to get out. So there's light at the end of the tunnel. If the tunnel is dark, then your player is lost and you're not going to see growth. So, you, you know, he, he's done a great job holding me accountable. Some days I didn't like it, um, but he's a very mature young man, as you know, and um, he's a guy that's going to maximize his game. Like we're, we're hoping he's going to add another, like he went from his first year, last year he was faster, and he's still going to add a little more zip in his stride and add another gear. And I think that'll help accelerate him to maximizing what he can do. But I would expect him to have a uh, a uh, an elite training camp in Nashville whenever that occurs. And he's gonna make some guys open their eyes for sure. You, uh, we
2: had a great season last year and obviously you were uh, a very important part of that. And that was recognized by the American Hockey League as the, and you're named the coach of the year, second coach after Claude Noel. In admiral's history to receive that honor. Talk a little bit uh, about uh, who, how you, how you found out, and you know what it means. And also, I'm sure you just got crushed from people congratulatory messages and uh, uh, any off the wall ones that I uh, hadn't talked to this guy in 15 years, and here's a text message from him.
1: Well, yeah, you do. You do. Your phone does blow up when things like that occur. Um, but uh, I, I, if I remember correctly, I think Scott Nickel gave me a call. Probably the league, Mike Murray called him and informed him uh, of the uh, announcement, and then Scott called me and let me know. Um, and you know what? It's it's a very proud moment. You you've gone through a lot of things to try to uh, build your career and have some success. Obviously, there's a lot that goes into that award. Your your staff, your management, the players, all that thing, all everyone's a big big part of it. So. I think in the end <clears throat> the uh, the messaging from that is it's nice to put on your resume it's nice to get a little shine um we would turn it all in I know we always say this but I would turn it in not for the championship but to have a chance to play the playoffs because we missed out on that this year
0: yeah
1: and uh, that was severely disappointing for our group for our fans for Harris for the front office everyone was so excited about the 50th anniversary Uh, where we were heading, how the season was progressing. Uh, The buildup was massive and awesome. And unfortunately, um, with the situation, the way it went, it went away for everyone. So I know we're all very disappointed that we all wanted to have that opportunity, but yeah, there was lots of great messages from lots of friends and family and different people in the business. and um, I think it was, uh, I think Ron Hextall sent me the one and he said, i I appreciate your perseverance. <laughs> I like that <laughs> So, uh, Ron was my boss through with LA with the East Coast League teams, and always a gentleman, and uh, he's got a lot of perseverance as well. So, I appreciated that message. That's for sure.
0: No doubt. No doubt. Charlie, you have anything else? I think that's a good good place to leave it. That is a good place to leave it. Uh, Carl, you didn't. Uh, you you threatened that you were gonna be like that here. You you were great. <laughs> You were great. So we appreciate that. Uh, stay well. All the best to your family. And uh, I look forward to the day where we can see each other in person rather than on the Zoom call. All right. Me too, fella. All right. Thanks a lot. Admiral's head coach, Carl Taylor. We're going to wrap things up. Thanks for listening to this Milwaukee Admirals Podcast.